Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Mark Wingfield. Mark, welcome. Hello, Amy, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure because I feel that you've got something that a lot of people would benefit from hearing. Okay, that's very kind. <laughs> yeah, what do I mean by that? <laughs> well, when we first had a conversation a little while ago, uh, just to sort of talk through what it is you do and why you do it, I was like, okay, this is definitely needs to be sort of put into a, a bigger space to show more people what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. So why don't you share what it is you do? Okay, well, um, thanks, Amy. My kind of my raison d'etre at the moment, I've come, come to realise is that I help people with fear, primarily. And that can take many, many different forms. And I originally thought it was all about protecting people from violence and aggression, and I've, I have a bit of a specialism in that. But um, kind of evolving out of that was I've become a trauma therapist, which I certainly wasn't expecting to do. And I've applied lessons I've learned in, in life, in business, in all sorts of different areas, but I've come to realize recently that it, it's all around fear and helping people build resilience and deal with things that they will find really challenging. And so I, I kind of do that. That's, that's my bag, really. And how did, you, how did it happen? How did you get into working with trauma? That was, uh, somebody who knows me quite well and knows the work that I do help and protect frontline staff. So I, I would help people with the threat of aggression and violence. Uh, they they know that when I do one of my weird and wacky courses where we frighten people deliberately, we don't traumatise them, but we make sure that they're okay and they are empowered to deal with nasty stuff. She said to me, oh, you ought to do havening. I'm like, I've been a havering. What's havening? She said, no, no, it's, it's uh, all about a safe haven. I said, okay. And she made me think because on my courses, because they are quite scary and, and deliberately so, we will have a group of maybe 16 people lined up and they all go one after the other. And one of us will be really horrible and obnoxious and the other person from our team will coach them through it and support them. And when you're being faced by somebody with dark glasses on, their body language is really not nice. The words that come out with are designed to hurt. They're designed to be vicious and, and aggressive. Uh, some people just can't take that. They're not in a place where they can deal with that. Most do, and they know when they start the course that they're going to be facing us, and they sign a piece of paper to say it's okay to be really horrible to you within the confines of a, a specially managed event. But they they often go, uh, especially young lads, it turns out, they all go, um, no, don't do me, uh, do him, mate. He's, you know, he needs it more than I do. No, I'm all, I'm all right. Yeah, yeah, go on, Fred, off you go. And so these people will duck out. And I sort of screw up my face and think, oh, that's the guy that needs it the most. And so I, I was having a few, not many, but a few of these over the years. 
And uh, Sarah, the lady that said, oh, you ought to do Havening, I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe I can have a one-to-one treatment that will help these people. And so that's how I got into it. So I, I, I am a trauma therapist via Havening Techniques, which is um, a set of techniques that's designed to take out the emotional distress associated with usually past events, but it does work also for future events. And so that's that's kind of how I got involved in it. And Havening is, I think you described it before to me, as the bio, biochemical changes in the body. Yeah, even electro, electrochemical change, because what you do have to do as part of the process of getting ready is you have to think of the issue that bothers you. So uh, that, that activates certain things within the amygdala, allows them to be worked on because they're very difficult to access normally. And to start a whole load of chemical changes, you start what's called havening touch, which can be a gentle, I'm actually doing it now, I'm just so used to explaining and do it at the same time. You might even hear it on the, on the podcast. But I will start stroking from my shoulder down to my elbow perhaps around the face, both hands, one hand on either cheek, or even just moving the palms together. And that generates something called a delta wave. So that's the electrical side of things. And we're generating chemicals as we do this at the same time. So it is a biochemical change, you're quite right. But there's a lot of, not we're not having 240 volts going through, but we are having an electrochemical change as well because of that soothing touch. And you said you work. You used to work, or do you still work with frontline staff? What does that involve? Uh, I do still work with frontline staff. Um, limited at the moment. We're still in lockdown as we speak, so um, that's been sort of frozen at the moment. But that could be any kind of frontline staff who are perhaps in a challenging role, customer-facing role particularly. And I work, for example, with uh, at the moment three train operating companies. So it could be the person behind the ticket office counter. It could be the person on gate line checking your tickets. It could be the person on the platform. It could be the person on the train checking your ticket. It could be the person serving you food and food and drink uh, on the from the, the galley or from a, a trolley. And I've worked with some train drivers. I've worked with supervisors, security people, cleaning people. And that's just in the train industry, if you like. It could be a housing association. It could be a councils. I've even worked with councillors, as in political councillors. You might not think of them as frontline staff, but um, unfortunately, there are some nasty people around who will have an axe to grind against a particular political colour, whatever that colour might be. So um, uh, Joe Cox's murder brought that very much to public awareness. Um, so it could be any, anybody. I, I work with lots of different charities, so I work with some very, very crunchy areas. So um, I don't really want to use the terminology, but there's, there's such things as FGM and CSE and DV. Anybody who's affected by these will know immediately what those initials mean. Very nasty stuff. And so we help people who are on the cusp of that or might get involved in it for one reason or another or might be protecting people who are involved in it. Uh, we help people um, in very crunchy areas like that. Um, and I also work as a as a trainer with um, the Modern Slavery Helpline. So in some really nasty areas of trafficking and, uh, and all sorts. And so that's 
that's kind of where our work comes from. It's the nasty stuff, which I'll be honest, I used to avoid years ago, but suddenly realised one day, no, actually, that's my calling. That's where I, that's where I should be working. So, um, so that those are typically frontline staff, but it could be people in the supermarket. You know, we work with uh, small shops sometimes, uh, pharmacies, GP practices. Uh, could be anywhere where there might be some potential for conflict of some kind, and we empower people to to be able to deal with it effectively. Still great customer service, but there's a time and a place to get to safety as well and uh, and how to deal with all that. So you're working with people who have experienced this or might experience this. There's there's a different in the combination, I would imagine, in how you're then sort of talking to them, having had the two different sides of experiencing it or the potential to deal with it. Yes, although I, unfortunately, we tend to get called in after something's happened. It's not something that people spend money on when they they don't even think about it because they don't think they've got a problem. It's when the child has been bullied. It's when somebody's been beaten up. It's when there's been a sexual assault of some kind. It's you know when something untoward and, and nasty has happened. That's when we tend to get called in. I'd much rather do the preparatory stuff. I've written I've written a book which has got first chapter or first couple of chapters is all about preventing stuff but most people don't uh, don't tune into that i wish they would and uh, so yeah that's that's why we tend to be after the event rather than before the event and can you explain why people would would react the way they do to treat others like this why so i'm not talking from the side of the recipients but the ones that are giving out the the the, the fear the violence uh well that that could be for all sorts of different reasons um a lot of it is because these people have probably had something nasty happen to themselves in the past and they may have been traumatized themselves they might have developed their life along those lines i have a have a good friend for example who was sexually abused as a child um and he grew up to be a very aggressive violent young man and he ended up on the wrong side of the law. He ended up becoming a, a mercenary. Uh, he'd always wanted to be in the army, um, but because of his behavior, he wasn't allowed. And because of his criminal record, he wasn't allowed. He's now a, um, he helps people. He's a counselor and he's a, he's a lovely guy. And everybody's born, nice little baby, uh, hopefully healthy and, with all their you know all their potential ahead of them it depends largely depends on on how you're brought up and and what happens to you in life you know um, so it could be for all sorts of different reasons and um, when when i work with people in schools and talk about bullies again there's a myriad of reasons why people become bullies and um, maybe they're frightened themselves maybe they feel a need to dominate somebody or they like violence they like, you know, that there are one or two that like hurting people. And, um, but there'll be a reason for it again. A bit like phobias, really. When you talk about phobias, there's always a reason for it. Some of them are the weirdest things in the world, but there's always some reason why somebody has a phobia. Isn't that true that you're only born with two phobias or two fears? Uh, I think it's more than that. Um, I'm not sure I'd describe them as phobias, but... Uh, there's fear of open wide spaces, there's fear of enclosed spaces, there's fear of loud noises. Um, and there are one or two others, I think, I'm just trying to remember what they are off the top of my head. But those you're born with, yeah, innate, innately. 
I thought it. Oh, I thought oh, that... oh, uh, Wrigley things. I think another one's a Wrigley thing. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Scampering things across the ground because some of them are uh, can kill us, of course. Uh, fortunately, not in the UK, but um, not many of those in the UK. But if you live in Australia, for example, then there's quite a few of them. Yeah, I, I, the two that I thought that you you were born with and the rest are kind of learned were the fear of loud noises and then the fear of falling, which is why we have that instant grip mechanism as a baby. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you said earlier that you'd been avoiding your calling and then you've come round to it. What what happened? Um, good question. I When I set up my my second business in 2006, I first started flogging some things that I developed in my previous job, and that got me going for about 14 months. But all the time I was thinking, well, that's only a, a launch project. So why don't I do something I really love? And I was into my martial arts, and I thought, oh, perhaps I can do self-defense through team building, because everybody want to do that. Hmm. <laughs> no, it turns out they didn't. Uh, it's great fun, and it's very effective, but um, lots of other great team building stuff around. And I was doing that with my karate sensei because he was a fabulous teacher and uh, we got on really well together. And he actually said to me, oh, I fancy doing a bit of corporate. That's exactly how he said it. And that's what he meant. <laughs> and he, um, he was kind of the, the much more experienced person compared to me. So we're going back to um, talking 13 years ago now and or 14 years ago, in fact, and he uh, he was kind of my backbone, if you like, in terms of having the expertise and the experience and the knowledge and the know-how. And I kind of, I didn't hide behind him, but I thought, no, he's he's kind of the front man and I'll organise the business and I'll help him out, of course, because I've got a certain amount of expertise as well. And then uh, he departed the business uh, amicably. We decided, he went, went back to running his karate schools, which are nice, successful schools. And, um, and I tried to make a developed the brand Max, which I, I've developed. And and I kind of did the a few bits and pieces that were around fairly tame activities on self-defense, if I'm honest. And and then I, I met somebody who said, oh, um, you want to talk to Sheila? Said, okay. And when I met Sheila, she ran a small charity which looked after um, children who were at risk of being sexually exploited. Really grim stuff. And uh, she asked me to do a, a lone worker personal safety course. She said, oh, yeah, we like this team building thing, but we want to make it you know, really useful and practical. I said, oh, I think I could do something on that. And I'd actually done, just done some more training recently, tried it out with a, a domestic violence refuge, and it worked fantastically well. And the ladies who we worked with uh, Loved it and were really empowered. And I just thought, hmm, yeah, something's coming together here. And so we tried it and it worked brilliantly. And I learned so much myself. I even went to their conference, very naive about the world of CSE, learned a huge amount. Some of it shocked me to the core. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe I can help here. And then I did a little bit more in domestic violence and around some really nasty areas and I started building up the experience and the confidence that I could do this and in 2009 a friend of mine invited me to work with him on a Sky One um, series called Football Behind Bars 
which was presented by Ian Wright, the professional footballer, now commentator, that most people will know. And we were at Portland Young Offenders Institution in Dorset, and I was absolutely cacking my pants. <laughs> because the brief was, right, you have to make these young men who are mostly, about 95% of them are in for violence of some kind. The brief is you're going to make them very, very angry and you're going to help them learn self-control. Right. And it's going to be in an old gym. And, yeah, we'll get some staff with you. Now, what that staff turned out to be was one security guy. Uh, at one point in the afternoon, we had two sessions. In the afternoon, we had all the psychologists turned up and they were at the other end of the gym, out of harm's way. And there was uh, Malcolm and myself, there were two cameras. We had to get quite close to the people because there were only the two cameras. It was terrifying <laughs> because these young lads were all young, all under 21, young, fit, healthy. All they had to do in, in prison was uh, that they enjoyed doing was going to the gym and, and building their already considerable, considerable muscles to be even bigger and, and a bit more lithe. So um, we were told, yeah, get, get quite close to them, make them really angry. Yeah. Okay, so what happens if... Well, Malcolm and I agreed between ourselves. What happens if they, it all goes pear-shaped? So we decided just to run as far and as fast as we could um, and not get into fisticuffs. And uh, fortunately, we didn't have to use that, but it got a bit hairy on a couple of occasions. And there's a video on YouTube that will show, <laughs> I'll show that if anybody's interested. But um, So having done that, plus the other bits and pieces that I had, and over the years working in some really crunchy areas, one of, one of the most challenging ones, I think, was working with the Foreign Office for people who were going out to Iraq and Afghanistan, and we would teach them what to happen in kidnap attempts and uh, rape attacks and all sorts of horrible stuff. And I suddenly woke up one day and thought, actually, I know what I'm doing here. And I was working with people who I thought and perceived had perhaps more experience than I did. and. Um, and I woke up one day and thought, actually, I've, I've got just as much, if not more, than most people. Um, I don't claim to have the most by any means, and I haven't seen everything. And I, you know, I've led a, led a fairly blessed life in, in terms of not being traumatised by anything. But it's, I just thought, no, I'll work with people who have fantastic experience that's complementary to mine. But I'm quite happy standing on my own two feet now. And when when we get the results that we do, I know that it, I know that I can, you know, I'm happy with that. So what, why trauma? What led you into it right at the beginning? Um, why trauma? I think it, it's not so much trauma. It, was, it started, I think, many, many years ago because I'm, I'm not a very big guy. I'm five foot six and a half. That half is very important. Uh, I'm one of three brothers and both my brothers are quite a bit taller than me and I'm the youngest. So when I, when I was growing up, I wasn't overly bullied by my brothers by any means. But what I did have to do on, on many occasions, and most siblings will re relate to this, is stand up for myself. And because I was quite small at school, I remember very vividly in junior school, I remember people trying to push me around because I was smaller. And they learned very quickly that, no, they're not going to do that because I had brothers that were much bigger than them and I knew how to handle them. And... Um, at that age, I, I think I was quite aggressive when I was a young lad. 
and it, I sort of learned how to use that aggression in different ways as I got older. But I've always, always had a, an affinity with people who might be just a little bit different and possibly might be picked on for one reason or another. So I would be friends with the, the hunchback lad at school, for example, not many people spoke to him. Um, and the, the big, nowadays it's very different, but if you go back to the 70s when I was at school, they used to be one, we'd call them obese now, but they were known as the fat kids or the fat, the fat ones or the fatties. And, you know, I, I didn't have a problem with a guy being fat and I would talk to him, yet he, he got, there's one guy in particular I'm thinking of right now who just got bullied crazily. And I, I, I just didn't like that. And um, so it, I think it stems from there. And as I grew older, I, I didn't like people of different colour being picked on or different religions or backgrounds or gender or, or whatever it was. And so I think that led me into thinking, well, I, I want to help people in some shape or form. But I didn't quite know what that was until those various things that I talked about earlier. And they all kind of sort of crystallised and thought, oh, actually, maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing here. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's directly answered your question. but Yeah, no, it does. I, I, going back to when you frighten people on a course, mm. yeah. how does it make them feel? Um, well, it, we're designing it to make them feel frightened. So, so it should, they should be fearful. And we'll do that in a, in a very particular way. So let's say, for argument's sake, we're working with um, a housing association and we're working with housing officers or uh, maintenance people or people who maintain the lifts or whatever it might be. So we will approach them as though they are in character role. So we take on a, a character and we will pick up on what they're wearing. So the badge that they've got for the local housing So, oh, you're from them are you from whoever housing association is or oh you can f off mate don't want any wallpaper you can just sling your hook and we will be aggressive and we'll you know if they've got red hair we'll call them ginger if they're if they're colored in any shape or form whether whatever shade they are they are you know, with their with their permission they've signed a piece of paper to say this you know it's obnoxious stuff and I don't apologise for that because it's designed to help them. It's not to be gratuitous in terms of being racist or homophobic or whatever it might be, but we will use all that language with their permission. If they say we don't want it, we will respect that. But we'd rather have a free reign, to be honest, because that's what can happen in real life. So um, we'll be really horrible. We'll pick up on you know, whether they are overweight or they're maybe they're skinny or they wear glasses and we'll, you know, they'll be Specky four eyes or whatever else we come up with, or they're follically challenged like me, so they'll be baldy or slaphead or whatever we decide is appropriate to try and get them going. And the idea is to is for them to press their hot buttons. And sometimes that's really hard. There are some people who are so cool as cucumbers. We spend a bit of time trying to make them feel a little bit uncomfortable start to lose their control and then we help them get it back again so they can deal with things that that might really happen to them they might have a difficulty with in real life so it's it's really challenging but afterwards people walk out 10 feet tall metaphorically so they 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 feel real real fear that's the objective 
but they help through it by the coach if they need it, or if they're just brilliant and deal with everything that the intimidator, as we call them, throws at them, then we disappear. So they get immediate feedback. Oh, that worked. Great. If they do the wrong thing, we hang around. <laughs> so it, it's very simple. It's a, it's a very simple process. And how can you deal with name calling or aggression? I think a lot of it is closing it down and just not getting involved. Because even though the words may sting, they may be really awful. If you start to engage, you're giving the person another reason to keep on going. And so you, you open yourself up to more hurt, more uh, discomfort. So whilst it might be really, really hard to do, and I do understand that, especially if you've, you've had really nasty things happen when certain words have been used, then to, to avoid getting engaged in that conversation, there is a time and a place to engage, and there's sometimes a time when you just, please don't talk to me like that, please go away. If they don't go away, then you, you try different tactics. Or you just say, look, I'm not interested, sorry. I'm sorry if I've upset you, I didn't mean to. Can you please leave me alone now, please? You can say please and thank you, still be assertive, still be strong. And we, again, whatever the situation is, we will try and tune it to them and their environment. So if we know they are weak on something, if they are brave enough to tell us that they are, we will produce something very specific. So if they said, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't like going down these dark alleys, or when I see kids out with, you know, they've got lighters out and spoons, and I'm walking down, and I, I don't know what to do. Or when they, when they call me this name or that name, what, what can I say to stop them doing that? What can I? So we, we put something together, and we'll deliberately provoke them, and we'll give them, you know, some, some options and prepare them. And if, if needs be, the coach will step in and just out of their eye line, will say, tell them this, tell them that. And if they're stuck, they're frozen, because that often happens, they just repeat the words that the coach has come up with and it starts to work. As long as they put the, the tone right, the way it's delivered, the body language, the, the whole package, it has to be congruent. And are you seeing a rise in conflict? Um, for me personally, it's difficult to tell because of lockdown. But um, anecdotally, I'm hearing that there is a lot of you know, some people are saying, oh, there's more than there ever was in, in my premises because there are so many frustrated people. People have been locked up for all these months and they haven't been able to get out and about. They can't get the things they want. They're fed up to the back teeth of the people they're living with. They want to see people, they want to do things, and they still can't do it. They're still frustrated, and so they've got really short tempers. This instant society that we've grown up with over the last decade or so with smartphones everywhere and um, instant gratification wherever you want it, you know, you can get whatever you need very, very quickly nowadays. All of this combined, my gut feel is yes, it is worse, but I, I can't give you any figures on that. I know... From my book research um, in certain industries, and I did a lot of work on the rail industry, for example, violent assaults definitely are up, yes. I haven't got the figures to hand to tell you what those exactly are, but I don't think it'll be too different with a lot of other areas. And I don't think there's going to be any lack of road rage right now. 
people who haven't been driving for a few months, suddenly they're all out on the roads again. I've seen some terrible driving during lockdown because people haven't had any cars to worry about. And they're on the wrong side of the road and they're on the phones. It's, yeah, they've got to get used to not doing that again. So in the sort of lockdown period that we've we've experienced recently, and I know that it, it's difficult to sort of say, but does crisis aggravate violence and frustration and aggression? I, I think inevitably so, yes, because it's just another factor in, um, well, it's another change factor, which most people don't like change. It's another irritant, another potential for something to spark off. So I, yeah, I, I think anything new like that is is a potential. And you mentioned your book. What's your book about? Um, well, the book is, it's, I wrote a book last year called uh, How to Get Your Staff Home Safe Every Day. And it was designed for the rail industry. And I was looking to do a lot of marketing around that. And in lockdown, 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 lockdown I've, uh, I've made it into an ebook and it's now called How to Get Home Safe Every Day. So it's not for the people running the companies, which is what the original book's designed for. Um, it's, a, it's a Joe Public version or Josephine Public version, if you like. And, and that's been further broken down. I had time over lockdown to do this, of course. So it's been broken down into five different books, and um, one of which is pure, almost purely on the self-defence side. So really, really practical things to... The original book was to prevent, stop, and recover. And there were three sections in the book, uh, violence and aggression. And um, just loads of practical tips in there. There's even, in the original book, there's a self-hating guide at the back. Um, that isn't in the other books, but um, it's in other publications that I've, I've produced. So it's all about standing up to people without getting aggressive and not to be passive and a huge amount about awareness, because if you spot stuff before it happens, you can get away from it and you, you don't get involved. And there's so much that people can do that they're not currently doing. And it, it frustrates the heck out of me. <laughs> you know, people who are out jogging, walking with the rear phones in for example yeah a lot of people do it a lot of people have these headphones on which cost 150 quid and just think well they're just asking to be stolen really when they walk down the street listening to the music and they've got every right to wear them of course you know don't get me wrong it shouldn't happen but it makes you more vulnerable it makes you a potential target there's things in there about scooter attacks and uh, all sorts of nasty things that if only people get their eyes and ears open, they wouldn't be a victim. And uh, just lots of common sense stuff that a lot of people don't have in their head, <laughs> it seems. Um, not just from me, it's accumulated stuff I've picked up over the years and, and tips off courses as well. You know, things like, here's, here's a top one for you from an estate agent. I did some work for an estate agency uh, years ago and a uh, lady gave me this fantastic tip. She turned up at a, a premises and she said, uh, what I said to this bloke, because this bloke was a real creep. I just didn't want to go into a house with him. Just didn't feel comfortable. And she said, oh, do you know, the officer are giving me the wrong keys again. I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to reschedule. See ya. And she was off. Did absolutely the right thing. I thought, wow, what a brilliant little tip. And so, you know, I, I, I sort of sponge up any, any great ideas uh, that people have on the courses and, 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 and steal them. And, and spread them so that other people can use them. So, uh, yeah, so 
rambled a bit there but that's... no i think it's really important i mean you mentioned that people aren't aware of them and of course you know if if they're not aware then you know how can they prevent being a, a victim and, and it's again it's just it's you don't know what you don't know so it, it's you, you assume you're in a safe environment and then you're not and then it's how do you then come out of that because you you've got the whole different mindset of the the, the fight or flight and you, you're not acting with knowledge you're acting as a, a re- reaction which is just a gut one you know it's 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 primal one yes indeed and there's all sorts of things like how to avoid the bystander effect where you know if you're if you're in trouble and you need to alert people to the fact you're in trouble a lot of people just walk past thinking oh somebody else report it but how how do you actually pinpoint something how do you gain their attention there's been all sorts of studies on how you do that so if you point at one person and say you over there with a hat on phone the police now he's going to shank me or whatever the situation is, then that person is far more likely to do it. Again, there's no guarantees, I'm afraid, but they're far more likely to do it. And also, we, when we do this under an experiential training where it's scary and you learn to do it, that embeds the memory in your amygdala, which is fantastic. But if you haven't had that opportunity, there's other things like I, I teach something called heart rate variability control so that if you are blank, somebody says, I'm going to take your effing head off. And you go blank, you think, uh, which a lot of people do. We get that often. How do you turn your cognitive function back on? How do you get your brain thinking again? Well, I've got a technique which is based on breathing technique, which enables you just flip back to your cognitive function away from your fight or flight response. So again, that's in the book as well. So it's it's how to use that breathing technique to to your benefit and think your way out of a situation instead of smacking them or being passive or freezing or whatever it might be. It's interesting. You just sort of sent me back to when I was younger. I used to have some recurring nightmares of that moment when you want to scream but no sound comes out. It's it's that sort of, and then you wake up because you're all panicking. <laughs> yeah, and it, some people act like that and we've had um by the way this is a quick aside this is another true story we did some work for a college many years ago and we had a mute lady on the course you don't have to be able to shout loud to be very very assertive she was brilliant absolutely brilliant but with her whole body language you can't see this on the podcast clearly but i was just grimacing quite quite a bit there towards amy and she was very, very powerful. Now we teach people how to use the voice. The voice is really important as well. But um, yeah, it's more important to not freeze and mm. how to use anti-freeze techniques that we have in, in the book and on courses. That's, uh, that's paramount because otherwise you, you'll just go back to what your, your natural approach would be. And a lot of people don't know what that is until we turn up and we scare them. And then we find out some people get very aggressive back sometimes surprisingly so people who are quite meek and mild and they say oh no i couldn't be nasty to anybody Mm. yeah you give them the right provocation you hit their buttons you cross their values and wow you can get a torrent sometimes a torrent of abuse coming back at you which is really not good for escalating the or de-escalating the conflict or they might just start physically approaching you and and wanting to rip your throat out you know 
we've had that on courses before now where people get very, very worked up uh, and we help them to learn how to control them. So if someone's listening to this, Mark, today, how would they get in contact with you? Um, probably a, a good way to learn a little bit more about me and what I do and 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 hear from other people, not just me rabbiting on and saying, oh, aren't I good and I, I do this well? Go to my LinkedIn account and you'll have a lot of uh, very honest and, and written by the people who actually wrote it. But you'll see spelling mistakes. So I, I don't correct that sort of thing to make it look authentic because it is. Um, LinkedIn is probably a good place to look for um, my website, which is about the conflict side of things and helping people through nasty, challenging frontline stuff. That would be uh, max, M-A-X, conflictmanagement.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook under Mark Wingfield and uh, under Mad Max Man on Twitter. Uh, that's, um, that's when I dress up in a weird padded suit and you get to hit me as hard as you can. And some people really enjoy that for some reason. I can't imagine why. Um, so that's my Twitter handle or haveningmax.com. That's H-A-V-E-N-I-N-G max.com. And that's my Havening website. So um, and I'm, I'm on YouTube. There's a Mark Wingfield channel somewhere on YouTube and I'm on Vimeo as well. So if you, if you put Mark Wingfield Max, M-A-X at the end, you'll probably find me. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of those links go into the show notes anyway so people can find you and find out more about how to to be frightened or how to deal with any trauma that they may have experienced in the past because i i think you're you're right to highlight it it's something that people don't know that they should be just more savvy more aware of how to deal with a situation because you you know you could you never know when that's going to happen and you never know where you're going to be uh, and when it's going to happen so no you don't yeah, thank you, Annie. And and what I would say is, um, it's not just about the individual. What about the children? I've got two daughters. I've made sure that both both of my children have been on courses. And if your child's going away, if your nephew's going away, if your you know, somebody you you care about is going to a place that you're concerned about their personal safety, why wouldn't you prepare them the best that you can? I think that's a particularly good advice for those who are going off to university for the first time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about uh, violence and trauma. It's been really interesting to hear about it. Have you got a final message for the audience, please, Mark? Um, well, thanks ever so much for, for letting me spout away <laughs> from the amount of time we've been on, Amy. I think it goes back to... When you, when you think about traumatic episodes and, and where people have come from, I'm a great believer, because I now know it's true, that you can start again. And whatever has happened in the past, you can take away the emotional distress, the things that have driven you to do certain things. You can, you can change. People can change. And so nobody's a lost cause, I don't believe. Well, there are one or two exceptions who are murderers and so on, but they're usually psychotic and Anyway, um, but most people uh, have the opportunity to start again. If they take away the emotional distress that drives them in a certain way, you know, I, I've had people lose the weight off their shoulders. And I'll give you one, one example, if I may. There's a lady last year who came on a self-defense course that we did. And I asked her why she'd come along. I was just interested. And, and she broke down in tears. And I said, I'm ever so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. 
and she started telling me in graphic detail of a sexual assault that had happened 35 years ago. So she carried around the traumatic incident for all that time, and she was very worried going out and about. And I said, if, if you'll allow me to, Katie, next week when we've got a bit of time after the course, what I'd like to do is, is do this technique. And I talked to her about hailing. And we did that. It took 15 minutes for her to lose the emotional connection to that one specific event. It's a record for me. It doesn't normally happen like that, to be honest. But it, it was so wonderful because she then started going, uh, incredible. She's Hungarian, by the way. That's why I'm doing the funny accent. Incredible, incredible. And she was looking around for the distress because she'd had it for 35 years and she couldn't understand where it was. And she then said, it just happened. It's something that happened to her 35 years ago. doesn't bother her now. So that, that's a really good example of how things can change. Even military veterans, veterans who've had terrible situations with PTSI, as I prefer to call it, injury, they can turn back into the person they were before the, the incident. So there's always a, a new way of moving forward. That's, that's the, the, words, the word of wisdom, if I have any, <laughs> that I'd like to, like to leave with you. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.